Hey, welcome everyone to Training with Casey. I'm your host, Casey Cobra. And welcome. Tonight we're going to talk about um, whether or not perception, or I'm sorry, it's a holiday. It's been a long day. We're going to talk about if opera conditioning is a conscious process. Now, you could ask it about any method of training, right? But let's take a look at what some people think. Um, I was commenting on whether or not you could condition an emotion. And somebody commented that they liked operant conditioning, which is the conditioning of an action that causes, you know, a specific uh, result in the environment. An operant is, is behavior that operates on the environment. And so when you teach an animal to change their behavior, in order to control their environment, that's called operant conditioning. And the way it happens is that the animal performs a behavior and that has a consequence. And that consequence might just be natural. For example, uh, maybe the animal stops when he sees a wall, so he doesn't bang into it. Nobody necessarily put the wall there in front of him. It's just how he needs to interact with his environment. But then you have other situations like you don't want your dog to eat the food off your counter. And so you maybe put, I don't know, some kind of a shock device or something on your counter. So that when your dog jumps up and puts his feet on the counter to see what's on the menu, uh, maybe he gets a shock and then he doesn't do that. But is that process a conscious process? And this one trainer thought that it was. And I was pretty sure it wasn't, but I thought, let me look it up. So I looked it up and found several descriptions of operant conditioning in which they called it a conscious process. And uh, that really surprised me. But as I looked further, I found that there's actually a lot of controversy about that. And let's dig into it. So there's one other kind of... Um, conditioning that I read about and that was instrumental I'm, I'm sorry instrumental and operant conditioning are essentially the same thing and then you have classical conditioning which is where you condition a body reflex or a body response it's also called responsive conditioning so that would be like Pavlov, where he rang a bell and the dog started to salivate, anticipating the food. So you have the 
conditioning of a physiological reflex or physiological response. And you have the conditioning. Oh, by the way, nobody thinks that that one's conscious. Okay. So then you have the conditioning of behaviors in response to consequences of the behaviors. And then there was a third kind of learning that was listed, which was observational learning, where people are now accepting that animals can learn from observing others, which is definitely true. So, and I say it's definitely true because I use that constantly. And it really helps. And trainers that have a dog assistant know very well. Um, with op with perception modification, a big thing that dogs will do for us is when we're trying to teach new dogs condition relaxation, the experienced dogs will demonstrate it, usually not even on cue. They just hear us talking to this dog and they see the dog doesn't get it. And they like, oh, follow me, buddy. This is, this is the way it is. So they demonstrate and that helps the dogs. And there's probably other ways that it helps it, not only by the observation, but by the fact that this dog is getting calm. And we now know that um, hormones and neuropeptides and so on can be detected through the skin. They can actually seep through the skin and out of the lungs and affect the behavior of others. So not only is this helper dog demonstrating for the new dog, but they're also changing the environment to help them. Very, very cool. But nothing is cooler than this, which is bridge and target. And with bridge and target, well, actually there is one thing cooler, but we'll just take this one next. Bridge and target is where you use Bridges, which is a feedback signal to tell the animal when he sent it right. And you use targets to focus the animal's position and or attention. And once you do that, you can then trace the behavior with the target. So if I wanted an animal to do a backwards flip, presumably this will be a marine mammal, and I could trace that behavior underwater with a target pole and teach the animal exactly what it was, name it, and then start to raise it out of the water, making it higher and higher until I got it where I wanted it to, to be, of course, within the limits of the ability of the animal. So that is bridge and target. And that process is conscious. And there's a number of ways that I know. And one is that one of the trainers that um, understood SATs and trained using the principles of SATs did an experiment with a bunch of young people. And she did one experiment where she... Uh, used clicker training 
and another where she used Bridge and Target. And I don't remember if she used Lori, but I'll address that as well. Okay, so it, when she just did the, uh, you know, if she just did clicker training or didn't, the results of the training time were approximately equal. They're very simple tasks and it took approximately an equal amount of time to teach with clicker training as it did with bridge and target. However, when she asked the so-called train young people what they got paid for doing, they could not answer. They were repeating a behavior on cue. So they were trained, they had associated their operant with the consequence of whatever the treat was, but they didn't consciously know what the association was yet. But all of the people trained with bridging target were absolutely clear on what they did to get their re reinforcement. So that was very interesting. And it played right into what I had already experienced. Because when I was at National Zoo, I would, sheesh, usually every single training session demonstrate this. Pick some unsuspecting visitor out of the audience and ask them if they would agree to be trained just like animals were trained in clicker training. And they would say, yes. And I would then pick something they were doing, something they were already doing. So I wasn't standing around waiting for them to do something I wanted them to do. I was just picking something out of their natural tendencies, their natural behaviors. And it didn't matter how extreme it was the audience always knew what the selective behavior was, even though I didn't tell them. They knew by observing and seeing what got reinforced. And the person being trained was the last person to know. And one man was so active and flamboyant, he would just smack himself on the side of the head when he was thinking. And he smacked himself again and he smacked and I would bridge him at the instant he smacked his head. And I didn't mean to pick such an obvious behavior, right? Because of course he's going to notice that because it's just such an unusual behavior, et cetera, et cetera. But he didn't, he didn't. And when I asked him what it was he did that resulted in his reinforcement, he was totally mystified and the people around it started to chuckle and then they started to laugh and I asked him to do it. You know, I asked him, let's try it again. And he did it again and I reinforced him again and he still didn't get it. And I thought, wow, that is serious. The person you are trying to train is the last person 
to know what it is you're doing. Whoa, we don't want that. So I left the zoo sometime after that and studied the state of the art in animal training while I was at the University of Maryland in the Department of Animal Science. And they asked me to do a state-of-the-art uh, review of the field of animal training. And something that really astonished me was that in the operant conditioning literature, there was no description of the targeting process. And this process was everywhere, just about everywhere. There were a few people that still tried to just do trial and error, but SeaWorld, the Navy, and certainly uh, those of us at Scripps and those of us at Mystic Marine Life Aquarium, we all use targets. When I went to the National Zoo, I headed my own program and I started to develop things further down a direction I had already started, which is two-way communication. And one of the things I did is I developed a language with um, symbols and we used that to name things and to ask the animals what they knew. Like, what's the name of this fish? What's the name of this behavior? Who is this individual? And they could go to a rack with all these graphic symbols on it and actually target on the answer. And I quickly learned that that was great. The animals did very well. They could definitely manage it. And we were able to... Um, make it a, a relatively logical language because if it was a verb, it had a white background. And if it was a noun, it had a gray background and the actual symbols were in black so that we knew there was good contrast regardless of whatever the vi color vision of the animal was. But it was very ponderous. So then I graduated to using a binary toggle where I'd assign one meaning to my thumb and another to my finger. And I could ask the animal that way, you know, binary choices. Is it this, yes or no? Do you want A or B? Do you want A or other, et cetera? And this works really, really well. So now we have a way to get some direct feedback from the animals. And we do use that to um, find out what they learned. And they learn very quickly, very efficiently, and can master all kinds of vocabulary, concepts, um, but also in Bridge and Target, we teach First, the bridges, which are the feedback symbol signals that tell the animal either you did it right or you're on the way to doing it right. And if you keep on in this direction, you're going to be successful.
uh, which by the way is a totally different thing than a keep going signal. If you think that they're both the same thing, they're not, but that's in another podcast, but just a spoiler alert. Okay. So, so the um, bridges give the feedback and the target shows the animal uh, where to observe to see the shape of the target or of the behavior, which we create by kind of drawing in air with the target. And then we name every little piece. So recently I did another podcast, I believe on retrieval. And we talked about um, the animal learning, the process of learning retrieval. And for a lot of dog trainers, there's something called a force retrieve. And um, it isn't conceptual, okay? It's setting the animal up to kind of accidentally grab something and then, you know, praising them for that and so forth. But this is different. In this one, we targeted the animal to open his mouth and then close it on an object. And that's very useful and it's the start of a retrieve. But it's also useful because on the way to the animal taking an object, you also go through the process of teaching the animal to target his nose and its chin. And you also teach the animal to open and close his mouth. And you also teach the animal to open his mouth and let an object pass through his mouth and close his mouth and let an object pass through his mouth. And we call that shibble and brock. And you also teach the animal to open his mouth and take an object, restrict it from being pulled away. And we call that take and then release where he uh, lets go of the object that he formerly took responsibility for. Can you see where every one of those little pieces of behavior is useful? It's very useful. If you have to take a swab on the inside of your animal's mouth, you don't want him clamping down on the Q-tip. If the vet has to look in the animal's mouth, you don't want him clamping down on the vet's finger. If you need the animal to hold on to something with his mouth, you want him to clearly understand the difference between those two cases. So when we taught these little modules of behavior, each one of them has a name. And when the animal gets to the end of the behavior, the entire sequence gets a new name that's specific to that particular behavior. Here's where it really pays off. Let's say you're training an animal for a movie and there's um, you've been told exactly what to do by the director and then the director sees it and he doesn't like it. Generally, you get two or three weeks to train ahead of time 
and now it's time to do the movie and there is no more time. But with a SATS animal who knows the names of all these different modules, you can just tell him what you're going to make next. And the animal will often put it together without error, just based on you telling him the names of those items. So this animal consciously understands that these names represent pieces of behavior. That makes training so much more efficient. And I've already talked before in another podcast about how um, we then interrelate all these things that the animal knows. Like if we teach him left versus right, we teach him all the different places that left is part of his life. Your left side, you turn left, the guy on your left, that kind of thing. And the animals understand if you just taught the concept of elbow, you can ask an animal that understands the concept of left versus right or front versus rear, can you target your left elbow? And if the animals experience, they are likely to just go right into a target with the elbow, even though they haven't uh, learned by direct experience. In other words, we didn't target it yet and reward them for that, give them a reinforcer. We just developed the concept of left versus right and different body parts. And now we just added a new body part that happens to have a left and a right. And they get it. They get it. They just offer us the left elbow many, many times. So we know that's a conscious process. And it's really significant because inoperant conditioning, let's say it was a conscious process, okay? Which it doesn't look like, it, as far as I can see, I don't think it is. And if you have proof or even scientific evidence, bring it on, let us know, let's talk about it, let's look further into this. But in operant conditioning, they rely on rote repetition to essentially carve a neural pathway that the animal is gonna just flow into because of the sheer amount of use of that pathway. So people will say thousands of repetitions. I don't do that at all. In fact, I rarely do the same step twice. What I do instead is I'll do something, then I'll do something a little different, and then I'll do something a little bit different, but they're all related. So maybe I'll do left eye, or eye, eyes, left eye, right eye, left and right eye, ears, left ear, right ear, 
both ears. Left eye, left ear, right eye. Right. You see what I'm saying? So I go through this entire set of like a matrix of how these things are interrelated. And that helps the animals study what it is we're talking about, what's the same as something else and what's different. And that contrast really helps you speed up your training. So what happens? Why are, you know, why does it matter which one of these you do? Well, I already said that the second one is faster. So um, SATS is faster than bridge and target and SATS and bridge and target are faster than clicker training, especially when you get into complex behaviors. But it's also probably easier to change things in SATS. Like I mentioned, what happens if you have a whole behavior that's trained and you haven't named the elements, you cannot easily change a part of it because you can't explain that you just need to change a part. So you have to completely train a new behavior. In addition, there's a process in the rote repetition that causes an animal to switch over from conscious to unconscious. So let me explain. Excuse me while I take a drink of tea. When that animal repeats something over and over and over again, their focus goes from what they're doing, like the purpose of what they're doing, to the repetition of the sequence. All kinds of things happen then. There can be stereotypy. So that's like, um, you might pronounce that stereotypy or stereotypy, but that's just where um, somebody does something over and over again and they get into a stylized way of doing it that's very rigid. So if you get on a train and you listen to the engineer or the conductor announcing the stops, ladies and gentlemen, they're not actually talking to you. They are just spewing off some rote piece of information that they have to deliver. I saw it in the uh, marine mammal shows where somebody, like I, I didn't do this, but a lot of people did. Um, instead of saying, ladies and gentlemen, we're about to do a show. If you want to join us, you can do it this way, etc. Ladies and gentlemen, girls and boys, welcome to the aquarium. Da, 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 da. Okay. So it would become stylized. And I've seen the same thing when we asked dogs, for example, to vocalize on cue. 
all of a sudden it goes from an authentic bark to something very strange indeed in certain cases. So if you want to look at your own experience for examples of this, one is if you have my particular kind of sickness where you play um, solitaire and you get a good game and you want to just see how fast can you do it. So you play the same game over and over again and you test out different ways of winning the game and so on. And just now the object is to see how fast you can go. And when you start that process, at some point, you start memorizing the order instead of authentically solving the puzzle. You've already solved the puzzle. You know what the solution is, but you need to make your delivery of the solution more efficient. Once you start that process, it becomes harder and harder to remember what you were doing, if that makes sense. It's like you turn your brain off in a certain way and you're just going by patterns. So if you don't have my sickness and you don't do that with solitaire, you might have this experience where when you first learned to drive, it took constant vigilant attention. And now you can arrive home and not remember how you got there. You just are driving with your unconscious <laughs> kind of running things for you. And you'll get called back to the scene generally if you know something happens like somebody swerves or whatever. But you're, it's not the same kind of vigilance that you had when you were genuinely learning. And where it really shows up is when you have to relearn part of that sequence that was in driving. So here's one. If you drive a manual car then and your clutch goes out, you have to double clutch. And you're an expert in clutching. You've been doing it for years. You've been doing it smoothly. But now you have to change something. And that is so difficult because you have this impulse to continue to do it the way you have been doing That The automatic pattern is very hard to resist. It's very hard to get an animal that's been up, you know, he, he's become proficient and now he's fast and has mastered something. And then you want to change some little detail. Good luck. Good luck. It takes a lot to get an animal to come back and really relook at a behavior once he's been allowed to accelerate it. Okay. So these are reasons that I don't believe that operant conditioning is a conscious process. 
And if it ever was a conscious process, I believe that conscious connection can often be destroyed by the sheer repetition. And when you train with bridges and targets and vocabulary, so that's what's different with SATs, if I didn't make it absolutely clear. With bridge and target, you have the bridges and the targets. And with SATs, you have bridges, targets, um, vocabulary, concepts, modules, kind of like Lego training. You're gonna make all these little pieces and then you can add them up together to create the Taj Mahal of animal training. It's a lot of fun. But this is a really important thing to think about when you choose how you're going to teach your animal. There's a lot more to that. Like, can we uh, get the animals buying? Can we get them to align with our goals? Can we teach them by observation? Can we, gosh, could we ask them if they understand? Now, I don't have a way to ask an animal if it understands, but I will say that when I tell an animal that we're going to do something that, um, like a sequence of movement, I have found that they will often immediately start to walk through the sequence to show me that they understand that, they get it. All right. If you have thought about this, if you know about this, if you've got citations, we'd love to see them. And I'd love to see your comments. So I'm all about using cognition in training, but I also use operant conditioning. And I also use observation. And I also make pictures in my mind. And I also manage my energy state. So if I want an animal to be calm, I'm also calm. And so it goes. There's many, many layers of information that converge to help, an, to help us explain things to an animal and to help the animal understand. By the way, if you're interested in that and um, you weren't aware of it, I have a manual called Talk to Me, and it goes through those processes, and it has pictures and also some exercises that you might find fun to work with, and I hope will really kick these concepts home to you. All right. Thank you so much for joining me. Take care, and I'd love to see your thoughts on this. All right, till next time, good night.